You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Erica Wheeler went to Stanford and set not only the school's women's javelin record, but a Pac-10 conference mark as well. She left there as a four-time All-American. Erica would go on to compete for the U.S. at the 1996 Olympic Games and won the 2003 outdoor title. She would move into coaching and is now the throwing coach for the U.S. Paralympic team. So we talk with her about para-field events. So Erica, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Sean. I'm excited to be talking to you. So uh, I'd li- I like to just start by asking you, how did you get involved in um, track and field, but obviously specifically the field part of, of, that, of the, the track and field activities? Gosh, uh, it goes way back. Uh, when I was young, my parents just encouraged me to do everything. So I was kind of that kid that went to every camp and tried out every sport. And um, it really wasn't until high school that um, we had track and field as our spring sport. And I chose to compete in that. And as a freshman, they had us try every event. And um, it turned out I I threw a javelin really far. And I did the other throwing events uh, quite well, but I also ran. And so I competed on the, the track team through high school doing the throws as well as running, and I just loved it. And then it looked like that was going to provide me a scholarship opportunity uh, to college to throw a javelin. I went on to do that, and and my goal was always to make an Olympic team and uh, continue to train and uh, made the Olympic team in 1996 in the javelin. But then the exciting part was I, I did not know that Paralympic sport was a parallel existence to the Olympic side. So while I was in 96 at the Olympics, I had no idea that two weeks later, the Paralympic Games took place. Um, So I I was completely unaware that Paralympic sport existed and was not um, introduced into the Paralympic world until 2007, uh, sorry, 2011, when I was asked if I would like to coach our Paralympic throwers And I agreed to it and then immediately hanging up the phone had to Google it to see what I just agreed to. And it has been the most amazing life-changing experience for me that I've had. And I'm I'm just so thankful that I was introduced to this this sport. And and obviously, besides being an Olympian yourself, um, uh, where did that coaching mix come into play in terms of um, uh, even maybe them even asking you if you'd want to coach? That's a great question. I So after college, when I uh, decided that I really wanted to continue to pursue my Olympic dreams, um, most of the time I spent having to coach myself in my sport. And so I became a student of my sport and I just learned, tried to learn as much as I could. And so then I would pick out um, the things that really worked for me. So I experimented, I learned, I saw what was successful for others, and I just really developed my individual plan. And then I had just some people that were really instrumental in supporting me and my goals and um, allowed me 
I think my biggest obstacle really was finding a place to train uh, to support my, you know, my training. Uh, so I did, I delivered packages, but I had a very wonderful friend who was also a javelin thrower, understood there's no money in the sport <laughs> and just invited me to come and live up there uh, and tr train at a place. So it reduced my cost. And so that was instrumental in just really putting me on my path. Um, and so I, I really was, I really did coach myself for the majority of my uh, 20 years after college. That, and um, so I think that's where the coaching side, I, I always evaluated <clears throat> what worked and what didn't work. And it kind of gave me a different lens into the sport. And I think that just naturally um, sort of evolved into uh, coaching others. And, uh, and that I, I honestly never thought I would make a career out of coaching, but it just evolved and it's, um, it's, it's just really been special. And I'm so thankful that I was able to reconnect to the sport in this, in this role. And so when you started, um, uh, coaching was, you said it was 2011, right? And, and did you coach, um, uh, you know, immediately on, were you part of the Paralympic coaching staff at the, at the time or, or did you take over the program right immediately? So, uh, in 2011, when I was asked if I wanted to coach our Paralympic throwers, it was specifically to, uh, be a coach on our Pan American team that, mm -hmm. uh, that year went to Guadalajara. So that was my introduction point was uh to be a coach for a pan am team and it really expanded from there so i uh, i got to know the athletes and i just saw how much i really loved the sport and i think personally for me i really enjoyed the challenge of figuring out how to accomplish the the biomechanical aspects of the sport that i knew you know had to um, be in place, but doing it in such a way for each athlete, how they, how each athlete presented, right. With each one of their unique, um, you know, abilities. And so I, that's the part that I just found. I was, uh, surprised by how much I just loved that part. Like, okay, here's an athlete. They show up. This is what they want to do okay, I know the event, I know we have to get this done, but we're gonna do, we're, we're gonna find a way to get it done. And we're not gonna allow there to be a challenge where I take that challenge on and we're gonna figure it out and we're gonna get you to achieve the highest level of performance you wanna achieve. We're gonna get it done. And, and I know, uh, like let's just take Javelin specifically, um, there are are different adaptations and and different classifications. Can you walk us through what those are at the Paralympic level? Sure. So track and field is the largest sport of all of our Paralympic sports. The same is true on the Olympic side for track mm -hmm. and field. But on the Paralympic side, it also means in being the largest sport, we also have the largest inclusion of the different classifications. So, for example, like um, there's some sports in, in Paralympic sport that are uh, just one classification. So like goalball mm -hmm. is for visually impaired athletes and we have uh, CP soccer. Right. So uh, swimming is uh, one of our 
also includes kind of the most uh, disabilities you're going to see, different classifications. But again, track and field has the most number of classifications in it. So, which means we, you're going to see in the throwing events, as well as track, all the field and track events, you're going to see, um, you're going to see visually impaired, you're going to see um, our uh, CP classes, our neurological classes, you're going to see spinal cord injuries, um, you're going to see amputations. Um, so, and even within those categories, you have a range of, um, of abilities within that. So that's what I enjoy. So for our throws, we have a, just like on the track side, we have a seated category. And then, that, so they would throw from a throwing chair. And then we have the ambulatory, the more traditional, uh, what you would see on the Olympic side, the ambulatory side. So um, I just love that you can take somebody on the seated side that has our lowest, um, ability class, they have the highest level of limitation or disability. And then all the way, I get to see athletes all the way up to on the ambulatory side, just uh, an amputation. So it's, yeah, the adaptations come accordingly to each, each level of ability, right? It's, and so that's what I really enjoy is looking at an athlete that doesn't have, has limited hand function, and um, can't access a lot of the major muscle groups uh, and then figuring out, okay, we're still, we can still throw the discus and the club in this event and let's figure out how to train and, and technically um, accomplish, you know, throw this thing as far as we can. And I would think, you know, even let's say there's a listener or a reader of a magazine that, that just hasn't given field events a try. Um, I would imagine it's one, a relatively low cost entry point versus maybe some sports. Um, and, and can you, can you tell me, you know, what, what it would take to get into the sport if someone's, you know, really just, you know, let's say they're watching the Paralympics, you know, and, and say, I, I want to try that. How would you get someone started? That's a great question. Um, so it's realizing that we actually, you know, throwing is not something that's as abstract as we think it is. I mean, if you think, you know, kids, we, we throw rocks, we throw balls, we throw um, frisbees. And, and so it's really my suggestion is for anybody starting out is just just get out and, and move and, and throw stuff. It doesn't have to be technically perfect in the beginning it's just getting that sense of um the movement and just the, the the throwing motion um so you can you can find if you can't get a hold of a shot put um or a discus or a javelin throw a stick throw a a, a broomstick um throw some rocks for the shot put all right you know find a find a frisbee uh they don't have to be perfectly identical, but it's just kind of getting a sense of what a throwing motion feels like. And then uh, really a lot of people think the throwing chair down the road, when you start to really specialize and get you know highly competitive, it will be something that is very specific to you. But in the beginning, there's nothing that says you can't just uh, sit on a chair. You couldn't sit on a uh, even a cooler. We've had athletes get incredibly creative uh 
sit on the edge of a cooler, find a, um, just even a, you know, you can build like a cardboard box or not a cardboard box, sorry, but a plywood box. Um, just get creative to have something. If you need that stability, and that's typically why we see athletes throw from a throwing chair is it's either a, um, a coordination stability issue, or it's just, you know, not being able to access their legs. So um, use that as, as a point that just allows you to throw and keeps you safe on the chair. But don't let, don't let um, money or equipment ever be an obstacle. There's, there's always a way to get it done. That's a good point. And, and I think people, um, often see that as a, as an obstacle or a barrier and, and, and stop right there and don't pursue it any further. Yeah. I love that equation about, uh, you know, that we, that it's not as abstract as, as we think it is, because you're right. We, we all grew up and we all love to throw something, right. <laughs> Whether it's rocks across a river or a lake or a pond or anything along those lines or balls or Frisbees. I love that. I love that analogy and, and story. So it's if, if someone is inter, you know definitely wants to pursue it you know as a um, as something uh, more than just you know recreationally um, you know what what do you recommend? So uh, there are lots of Paralympic sports clubs um, in in people's in the states, and uh, we have a whole list of the Paralympic sports clubs. Uh, on the U.S. Paralympic Track and Field website, um, but just even Googling it, like Google uh, sports clubs, Google adaptive sports clubs in your area, um, and they are, even if it's not, even if it's in your state and it's not close enough for you to get to, they can still be a fantastic resource for just um, getting a hold of equipment or just linking you up to local, um, even if it's a YMCA or a, just, a, just a sport club that's, that's near you and possibly connecting you with a coach. Um, so definitely use uh, Paralympic sports clubs and adaptive sports clubs as a resource, just in terms of using that network and connecting you to equipment and coaches. Move United, your organization is just incredible in terms of providing information and resources. Um, and that's that's what we have to do is just continue to tap into this large network that really does exist. Um, and it's just, sometimes it's just a matter of Googling it and, um, and just finding that entry point. And, and so when you are um, coaching an athlete, uh, what what is the focal point of of training? I mean, I imagine there's some strength training involved, and and so maybe just the different components or elements of of training I wanted to talk about. Sure. So, as a coach, when I first meet an athlete, I kind of do just it's sort of an, an evaluation, and it's finding out you know how what experiences athlete has even had in sport, in, the, in throwing in particular, um, what are their goals? Is this really, we're just introducing you, we're going to see if you enjoy it. And that's really the first goal that I have for somebody is we're going to introduce you to it. We're going to see if you enjoy it, right? We're going to try out the, the different um, throwing events to see which one you, if there's one that stands out more to you. Um, 
so it's kind of just, you know, starting at that point and then also seeing where, uh, where can we really optimize? So if this person has really never had any experience doing strength and conditioning or mobility work and flexibility work, um, that I, that's typically we, where I, I come in and just build that, that foundation of making sure that when we do start to throw things at there, we're, we're not going to get injured. Making sure that athlete's body is kind of ready to do the movements that throwing asks of it. Um, so again, just kind of seeing where that athlete is their starting point, um, how much experience they've had, uh, is their body, let's get that body ready to tolerate some of the positions and the movements. So it's an enjoyable experience. Um, and a lot of that is for the throws is starting out with, um, getting flexible because, and, and then also being able to handle that that separation, like that rotation, that's probably the biggest component of throwing that people don't realize is there's, there's such a rotational component to it. So it's just getting the body ready to do those kind of movements. And then, and then just constantly evaluating where, you know, how's it going? Do we need to focus, we're going to focus in on just basic technique, but also just, you know, basic strength and conditioning and mobility and flexibility. And that that's just a great uh, place to begin. And then we just keep building from there. And and then at the Paralympic level in Javelin, are, are all Javelin, Javelin's the same? Are there different, different uh, based on classification, are there different sizes or, or weights or anything along those lines when it comes to the actual Javelin itself? So in the javelin, it, it is the uh, easiest of um, of the implements in that you re- you only have two, and there's the 600 gram, uh, and all seated throwers, no matter what your classification is, all seated throwers will throw a 600 gram javelin. Now, once you get uh, really young kids, they will actually start with like a turbo jab. There will be they will start with lighter implements. But once you get past, um, I believe, and this is where my knowledge of the younger kids, I believe it's once you get past 12, you are up to a 600 gram javelin uh, for seated. And then on the ambulatory side, the women will throw a 600 gram and the men, again, in some classifications, some of the classifications, the men will throw a 600 gram, but like your amputees uh, will throw an 800 gram, the men, um, your visually impaired will throw an 800 gram. You're really going to see mostly a 600 gram javelin. Okay. And, and how would, like, if you just had to, to visually describe, I mean, hopefully most, most folks know what a javelin is, but if you had to visually describe it, how would you visually describe a javelin? It is a long spear. <laughs> and it's lighter than most people think. They they're expecting to pick up a javelin and have it feel quite heavy, mm-hmm. but it is the lightest of all the implements, and it goes the farthest of all the implements, which means it's actually the most aerodynamic. So it it takes um, a lot of technique. It's not just overpowering it with strength. Mm-hmm. It really does take a lot of strength to to get this thing to to fly correctly. And you you kind of almost led me to to my next question about technique. So, 
um, what are what are the mechanics of the technique and um, what a what a, a typical thrower might do um, when they're when they're ready to launch specifically in the javelin mm-hmm. yep so javelin is uh, actually it's most like a tennis serve and a uh, outside hitter in volleyball that is actually the most relatable uh, movements to javelin. A lot of people think it would be like a baseball pitcher mm-hmm. or, a, or a quarterback. And there are some similarities, but it is um, a much closer to a tennis serve than an outside volleyball hit. So it is the overhand throw for all, you know, shot put in discus are basically underhand uh, throwing events. So javelin takes a little more toll on the on the shoulder, mm-hmm. um, but so it's that is why I spend a lot more time working on that that flexibility and that range of motion, um, and just using using the entire body or everything that the athlete can access to throw the javelin instead of it just being the arm. The arm is really just the um, delivery method, but it is, uh, it is using the rest of the body to actually um, get that javelin to, to go. And it's, uh, it's like a slingshot. It is very much a rubber band action. So the muscles are being lengthened and then accelerated that way. It's not a shorten and tighten and just, um, you know, muscle it out there. It is a, it is a fluid, rhythmic, stretching, snapping motion. And um, so when, when you're in a, a competition setting, um, you know, can you, can you, can you talk about like typically how many throws one gets and, and I assume, like, of your throws, it's the it's the one that went the furthest that's counted. Could you just kind of um, talk through that a little bit? Yeah. So um, you'll get an athlete typically gets six throws. Um, that is the maximum number of throws that an athlete will get uh, in the throwing events. Um, there's a caveat sometimes. It's usually in the ambulatory when we have a field size greater than eight Mm -hmm. in your classification that you would have three throws and then they take the top three throws and then then they take it down to eight athletes go on to get three more throws. They just... Typically, we find in our um, throwing events that we don't have classifications that have a larger than eight people in that. So that's why you, majority of the time you're going to see those athletes get six throws straight through. Um, and you are technically supposed to, except for the seated and the ambulatory, those first three throws, you do have to have a legal throw, meaning that it has to land within the sector and it has to, for javelin, it has to land correctly. It can't land flat or tail first. So even if you have less than eight, if you still don't get a throw that is legal, you could not get your your last three throws. But we're typically looking at in the seated, you get six throws straight through because the athlete, once they get their chair locked down into the ring and then the athlete gets um, secured in the chair, 
they're in there and uh, they're not moving. <laughs> they're going to keep them in there for their six rows and then they'll take them out. And you, you mentioned for seated athletes that at some point in time when you, when you're serious about the sport, that you do get your own, that it, that it really behooves you to get your own custom fitted chair. Um, I imagine, uh, I imagine it, it is exactly that, that you, that you, you wait, you know, if you're just trying out the sport, you know, maybe there's a program chair or a loaner chair or something. And, and, and then if you do want to take that, take the sport to the next level is when you, when you want to figure out a way to invest in your custom fit chair. Is that, is that typically the case? Yeah, that's exactly the case. And that's where, again, don't, don't let the equipment be an obstacle. And that's where you'll, when you tap into uh, sports clubs and, uh, and organizations that can find a way to, to get you uh, equipment, it would typically be a program chair, meaning there's a lot of things that are adjustable for the athlete to accommodate the, the different sizes and, and classifications. So it's just a great way to um, allow you to get a, a sense of it and uh, of the chair and kind of how you'll uh, make it individual to you, the things that you need to, to change in terms of strapping and, um, and how you're sitting in the chair. So then you will get your own chair that is, uh, is set up for you um, to move forward. So, and that whole idea to be set up for you is because when you get in a competition, once your chair is secured down, then it's um, the next step is securing you into your chair so you don't, uh, you don't lift um, so that you meet all the, the rules. And that's where making that uh, amount of time it takes to get you strapped down and secure in the chair, the faster that takes place, um, the more time you will have to then uh, for your warm-up throws, um, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, is there a, a warm-up period or a, next, a certain amount of throws that people get before? before I guess they're on the clock or before it becomes an official throw? The way they've done it, the, the rules have changed within the last uh, four years. And so now it's set up that uh, once an athlete, um, well, an athlete gets a certain amount of time um, to secure themselves in the chair and get their warmups in. So it's, it's, there's really no warm up here. It's just considered you have four minutes to strap yourself in and then get as many warm-up throws as you can within that, that wow. time period. That, okay, so that, that's where that's where particularly uh, behooves you to have uh, your chair dialed in, so that uh, so that you can that, that portion takes very little time and you can at least get warmed up a little bit. Okay, that makes sense. Yep, that's exactly right. And are there for for again since we're talking about seated uh, seated uh, competition. Are there certain straps that are required? Like, uh, you know, do you have to be strapped in at one or two different places? Um, and is that standard or, or, or what's the difference there? So um, the, it's really based on the rules, which are uh, for a seated athlete, they have to be the, in contact with the chair from the back of their knee to their ischial tuberosity. Now, the ischial tuberosity sounds like a really big word, but it's just that bone that goes all the way back on your, uh, on your bottom, on your mm -hmm. butt. 
And um, so you just, you have to stay in contact with the chair the entire uh, time for the throw. And so the, in, it's not a matter of the athlete not accessing their legs and everything they have. Um, so that's my, as a coach, that's my biggest message is that doesn't mean that you can't use your legs and you can't use your feet and you can't use your hips, whatever you can access. We want to get all that. We're just going to strap you down so you don't lose contact. And what we found um, that will prevent you from lifting from the hips is a strap that goes around your low on your hips, but the attachment point is back behind you as close to your midpoint of your of your butt as possible. So that instead of just going to from on each side of your hip, right straight off your hips. Um, a lot of people try to do it that way. Um, basically make a straight line right across the top of your hips. Um, that will not prevent your the back of your butt from coming up. So the best way to attach is around and back behind you at a, at a V point. Okay. Um, so that's a critical, critical strap for athletes. And the closer you can get it around and back behind to that center point, the more effective it will be. So that's a critical piece to stop the lift. Another uh, strapping point that we found is, is the front of the knees. Um, again, for just to accommodate that part of you can't lose contact with the back of your knee. So we try to have athletes kind of strap their either strap their knees down or come around in the front of the knee to side. And then the other critical, so there's really three critical and the other is to strap your feet down. And I encourage for every class, no matter, no matter what your level of function is to have a foot plate and strap your foot to the foot plate. And I remember when people looked at me like I was crazy, why would you have somebody that's paralyzed, you know, from very, very high up, can't access their legs. What does it matter to have a foot plate? But I actually have video of that athlete um, bending as they went to throw. They the foot plate was bending down because they um, they really were applying force through their feet. Um, it just it traveled. You mm -hmm. wouldn't think it, but a lot of times athletes have spasticity, and there is um, there is contraction taking place. And I recommend a foot plate for everybody because it's it is a surface area in which you can now apply force with your feet instead of your feet just kind of dangling behind uh, the bar. A lot of people would just tuck their feet behind, and they just have this little surface area that was in contact with the chair and and the foot plate, and then then strapping the foot onto the foot plate just provides that surface area that pressure can go into the foot plate and then back up into the into the body so those three the feet on the foot plate the the knees and the and the the hips being strapped down is are three musts and then you can add some individual we get depending if like if we have a high amputation there's kind of some special uh strapping just to keep that um you know, the, the, the stump strapped down, right? Mm -hmm. So we, again, looking at each person individually, what are some things that we need to kind of individualize for you to just keep you in that chair? Because the whole idea is we don't want any movement from the waist down. We want you to 
utilize the muscles. We just don't want them sliding in the chair because that's energy that's lost. Mm. Um, and, and it does make a big difference. Um, that chair, really locking in that chair design and that chair um, strapping for each athlete down the road can make, can add uh, meters and, and it can make a big difference. And um, I know we, we, we briefly touched on the, the, the throwing area. So is the throwing area, uh, I assume the throwing area is kind of a set, a set distance and, uh, and, and, and the landing area. Can we talk about maybe the, the, the specifics of the throwing area as well as the landing area? Sure. So um, these are all within the World Para Athletics rule books. And um, so you have a, basically we call it a sector for each one of the throwing events. So the, the shot put has a ring and then it, it has a sector that extends from the ring. And then as well as a discus, there's going to be a sector that extends off that ring. And then uh, for javelin, there's a, uh, for ambulatory, there's a runway and a tow board, and then a sector that extends off the tow board. And the, um, yeah, the landing area, just the farther out you get, the, the more, the wider that landing area gets. And that's all um, very specific in terms of the angles. Uh, so that's all predetermined mm-hmm. uh, in terms of just how wide each sector goes. But you're always... Um, in the in the seated throws, there is again they add a this the throwing chair will set in the seated ring up as close to that toe board uh, as possible because every throw is always measured from the toe board. It doesn't matter where the athlete ends up in the ring or on the on the javelin runway. Um, it's always measured from that same point, the back the back part of the toe board. So for seated, you're trying to get your chair snug up against that, that toe board, right? So you're not losing distance. And then when you're with the ambulatory throws, you're trying to right, get as close to that toe board release there as possible without stepping on it. And, and I was, so I was going to ask if, if stepping on or stepping, like whether it was stepping on the toe board or stepping over the toe board. So if you, if you touch the toe board, that's a fault, right? Correct. Yep. You can't, yeah, you cannot for, for shot put, uh, you can't step on top of the toe board. You, their foot can, uh, you know, push up against it on the inside of the toe board. It just can't get on top. Discus is a, it's like a metal ring within the, a lot of times you'll see a um, sunken in ring with a metal, with a metal ring and you can't touch, go on or over that. Correct. And then the javelin is a actual toe board that you cannot step on or over. Okay. I know we've, we've talked a lot about uh, javelin. I won't, won't necessarily spend as much time on, on the other two sports, but um, maybe, maybe talk about uh, the, the, the discus as well as the, let's start with the discus first. Let's talk a little bit about, about the discus and, and, you know, maybe what, what the object is and, and um, uh, how it differs from the other throwing sports. Sure. So yeah, uh, just in terms of kind of breaking them down. So the javelin is definitely much more of a linear uh, 
event and because it is the longest implement. So your javelin ranges from six to seven feet long, right? And so it, and it's very aerodynamic. So you're really, you have to throw through that thing and it has, and you want to get it as linear as possible. Whereas a, the discus is rotational, right? Your body's going to be moving in a rotational path to release it. Um, but it too is based on the principle of a, a stretched muscle is a fast muscle. Um, so you're basically, as you rotate, you're trying to turn, a, um, get as far away from the discus with your hips as possible to create what we called, uh, what we call separation. And you can think of it, it's true for all the events, um, but you can think of it as like you're loading a spring. So you're coiling, your spine becomes the, the spring and you're, you're kind of coiling that spring so the hips are turning and your, your hand and the implement are staying back and you're just creating all this load. And then when you go to plant, you unload it all. It all happens, um, hmm. you know, unloading that, that, uh, that torque and that tension. Um, so that's happening basically in every event, shot discus javelin. Um, you're just doing it, uh, shot, but you can do it with a glide or a rotation as well. Uh, discus is, is a rotation in the ring. Um, and the implement is getting out away from your body, nice long arm, a nice long lever, uh, to release same as javelin, nice long lever. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's basically the separation, getting the hips and then getting the longest amount of distance and time to get that stretch and that unload. And then that'll give you a, a nice uh, fast release. And, um, and then lastly, I want to talk about shot put, but I also want to just ask, um, do athletes, uh, particularly once they reach, I guess, the, maybe more the more elite level, I find that they specialize, right? You don't have a lot of, uh, there's probably not a lot of athletes that do all three throwing events, for example. True. Yeah. It, you really don't see that very often at that high level, just because um, those events are quite different. If you were to pair two events, it's typically the shot and the discus. They go together. Javelin is kind of a little bit more of a standalone event. Um because again, it's that overhand. It's uh, yeah. it's a little more demanding. Where shot and discus are are um, they they are much more similar. But a lot of that too, that being able to do more than one event, also has to do with um, whether it's even offered for each person's classification. It's not all three events are not available to every single classification. So that that tends to be a limitation as well. But you're you're absolutely right about people once they get to that uh elite level they're typically specialized in the one event yeah and then and so lastly i know that uh we talked a little just a little bit about discus um what what can you tell me a little bit about the shot put in terms of um either either technique or or maybe even just the the piece of equipment itself yeah so shot put is just known really it is it's the heaviest of all the events and it is that just 
sheer power and explosion. This is where you can just grunt it out and just, um, you know, it, it, because the shot put has to stay against your neck, uh, again, because it is the heaviest, um, you don't want that amount of weight to get out and away from your, your midline because that mm -hmm. I, a lot of people do mistake the shot for a throw instead of a put. And it is the one uh, event that you need to keep that weight uh, up against your neck and in close to your midline. And so that's the one you can just get really grunt and, and, and just try to try to muscle as, as hard as you can. Um, and it is going to take uh, typically a lot more strength than, than the other ones. The javelin and the discus are more rhythmic um, uh, events, right? Everything has to move. It's a little bit more like a dance and, and the shot, but you still have to have those, you know, the correct positions as well, but it is a little bit more of that just, pure strength and, and explosiveness. I, 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 that's That's fantastic. I love the idea that it's, you know, that the others are more rhythmic and, and this is, this is where you hear all the grunters, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I tell you when the shot put is done well, uh, for example, our American men's uh, shot putters on the Olympic side, uh, we have Brian Krauser who just beat the world record um, at the trials I mean, he makes it look just beautiful. Um, he is a very, he really makes that event look um, smooth and easy. And then mm -hmm. there's there's some others that are just big, yeah, um, strong, grunting, grunting guys. So they can, the shot put, I think, can look very, very different from athlete to athlete, but you're still having to accomplish the same biomechanical principles but some people do make it look just smooth and suddenly the thing goes incredibly far. And then you do have the, just the grunted out <laughs> mm -hmm. people as well. Well, Eric, is there anything I, I haven't asked you that, you know, is, is a, a something that's a, a, either a burning question I should have asked or something that you, you I, that everyone needs to know that, that we've not talked about? You've asked fantastic questions, and, and I would just uh, like to reiterate again that um, the throws are something we everybody's done at some point in their life, whether it's skipping a rock in a pond or, you know, uh, throwing uh, throwing even a, a T-shirt or an apple to a friend, right? We've, we've all thrown something at some point in our life, and uh, it's a lot of fun, and I would encourage everybody to just... Um, try it out, enjoy it. And then if, if they do want to find a way to pursue it, um, there are plenty of resources available uh, to get them going and uh, just to provide that, that pathway to have it be a highly competitive sport or just a, just a really enjoyable um, activity to be doing.